0: Okay, so this morning we are concluding the series that you've been journeying through on 1 Peter. And so if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, as you turn there, who's, who's run a marathon? Has anyone run a marathon? I know a few of you. Oh, wow, there's quite a lot of hands gone up straight up. I noticed the hands went straight up. Usually, you know, if you've run a marathon, then you're very pleased for other people to find out that you've run a marathon. Runners are renowned... <laughs> And I'm speaking kind of as a runner here as well, but we're renowned for just kind of dropping it into conversation. And given the opportunity, so those people who have put their hands up, they will will very easily, very quickly give you every gruesome detail (laughs) of every mile that they ran in that marathon. Now, if you've had the privilege of listening to a marathon runner, one thing that they will almost certainly talk about is hitting the wall. You heard that phrase? So it's a phrase that that runners use to describe reaching a point where you just feel like you can't go on. And it's a physical thing, but also a mental thing. It's just like every part of you just grinds to a halt. So I once ran Windermere Marathon, just to drop that in there, Beforehand, somebody gave me, I think, what is the worst piece of running advice that I've ever received. Basically, they said to me, you only really need to train up to 20 miles. And then, quote, the last six miles just take care of themselves. <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> the last six miles did not take care of themselves. So just past the 20-mile the route, I hit the wall. And it's not like London where you have kind of crowds cheering you on. You know, you have sheep (laughs) in (laughs) Windermere. I was on my own, and it was just every step was pure struggle. Now, I'll refrain from giving you any more details. But using that as an analogy, I think you could probably say, and you might be able to answer this better than me, and say this better than me, having journeyed through one Peter. But I think you could maybe say that, Peter is writing to Christians who have either hit the wall or they're facing circumstances that mean that they are heading towards it. You've already explored how they were living in a society that was just really hostile to their faith. They were facing all kinds of of severe trials. And so there was a real temptation to give up. Or if not give up, to kind of just shrink back from the call that God had placed on their lives to live as distinct people in the world. Now, although we're probably not facing the same kind of trials as they were, we can still hit a wall, can't we? We can still hit a wall where where life and living for God just become really difficult. And it's hard to keep going certainly with the same intensity. And maybe that image of the wall fits really well with where you are at at the moment. Or maybe you feel like you're approaching mile 20, it's getting hard, and you're anticipating that it's going to get even worse. Now, as Peter concludes his letter, what he does is, he, in a wonderful way, he draws together a number of the, the themes, the kind of the streams that, that run through his letter, the strands, if you like, And he synthesizes them to make sure that we've really understood how to keep going when we hit the wall. And so we need to listen, I believe, to what Peter says here. So 1 Peter 5 and verses 6 to 11. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to focus on verses 6 to 7 this morning. One scholar said that these verses summarize the whole ethic and comfort of the whole letter. In other words, they sum up what Peter is saying about how they were to persevere through trials. But in light of that, you know, I find it really interesting how Peter starts in verse 6. You see, if you were writing to Christians who were under extreme persecution, so some have lost their homes, some have lost their livelihoods, I kind of wonder, how would you seek to encourage them? You know, maybe you've done that kind of thing. I know that organizations like Open Doors, you can write letters to Christians who are facing persecution. Maybe you've written letters like that. If so, I kind of wonder, like, what was your main message to them, to encourage them? Well, for Peter, it was humble yourself. Let me put it like this. If your life is in the pits... And maybe you're, you're holding on to faith by a thread. Maybe you're facing just such uncertain circumstances. And Christy or Ian comes to you and says, do you know what, I think you need to be more humble. Like, I, I kind of wonder how you would take that. <laughs> Why would Peter say that? Well, the key to understanding this, I think, comes in the next word. The word therefore. Humble yourselves therefore a cheesy thing that preachers often say is if you see a therefore in scripture always ask what it is therefore in other words what has peter just said well he's just quoted proverbs 3:34 that god opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble now the word favor there is another word for grace why does peter want them to humble themselves well because Because Peter knows that there's a kind of humility that enables us to experience the power of God's grace to persevere when we hit the wall. In verse 10, I think it kind of confirms this. Having spoken about how we humble ourselves in difficult circumstances, he says, and the God of all grace will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This is why Peter exhorts them to be humble. Not because he wants them to feel bad about themselves. Not because he wants them to be in the dust. It's because there's a kind of humility that enables us to experience God's grace to keep going when in ourselves we perhaps don't have the strength to keep going. Commentators looking at sentence structure of verse 6 and 7 point out that both of the two statements there are an expansion of that phrase, humble yourself. They reveal what it means to humble ourselves and experience God's grace so that we can persevere. And so we're going to look at them both. Firstly, in verse 6, Peter shows us that we experience God's grace as we humble ourselves by submitting to his call, knowing that he will lift us up. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now this is one of those verses that is not actually saying what I initially thought it was saying when I first came to it. What I thought this verse was saying, and perhaps you, as you read it, it kind of seems as though it's saying, humble yourself under God's strength and then there'll come a time in this life where God will lift you up. So maybe God in some way will vindicate you or maybe he'll strengthen you. And of course, God does strengthen us when we submit to him. But this, I believe, is saying something different. Firstly, when Peter says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, the phrase there, God's mighty hand, was an expression associated almost wholly with the exodus, It was used to speak of God's mighty deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And so it's a phrase associated with God's salvation. And so when Peter says that God will lift you up, he's not just speaking about strengthening you in the midst of trials, but rescuing, delivering us. And so what is this deliverance and when does it occur? Well, Peter says he will lift you up in due time. Now the term in due time can mean at some point, but every time, what's interesting is that every time that Peter used it in 1 Peter, he was referring to God's future and final salvation. He was referring to the eternal salvation. He was referring to when Jesus returns. And so when Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up in due time, I think he's reminding the believers of two things that they need to hold in tension if they're going to persevere through their trials. One has to do with their expectations of life in the present. The other has to do with their hope for the future. The first is that to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand with an eye on God's future salvation means embracing the fact just as the Israelites in Egypt, that God's call may well involve difficulty now in this life. You know, at the beginning of 1 Peter, he calls them exiles, doesn't he? I think he's setting their expectations. They will face difficulty. So Peter is saying to humble ourselves means submitting to that reality. Now, perhaps that doesn't sound like a really helpful resource to enable us to persevere. But Peter has already shown us in chapter 4 that if we fail to embrace this, we'll really struggle. So in chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So Peter says, Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you. Now, this is so interesting. You see, in, in this letter, Peter never says to these believers, Do not grieve. Yes, here he says rejoice, but by that he means rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We can rejoice because just as Christ was exalted after enduring suffering, you will also be lifted up. You'll share in his glory. But Peter doesn't just say, don't grieve. He doesn't say that. Actually, in chapter one, he says you will grieve. You will have distress. However, he does say, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. I think this is so important. I think Peter is showing us here that it's not really the hardship and the grief that will undo you. It's being surprised at the hardship. It's if you're saying, how could this be happening to me? Does God not love me? I thought God loved me. I'm a Christian. What's going on? And so Peter is saying, grief in response to suffering will not undo you, but surprise at your troubles will. Having the wrong expectations will. You see, our expectations are really powerful. C.S. Lewis had a really simple but helpful analogy to, to demonstrate this. He said, you know, if you were shown a hotel room that you'd been told is a honeymoon suite, like your expectations would be quite high. And so if you're shown that room and there's no kind of plush carpet, there's no spa, there's no champagne, you'll be disappointed. On the other hand, if you've been told before the doors were opened that it's a jail cell, you would be delighted to find even the modest comforts. I think sometimes our problem as Christians is that we're expecting the honeymoon suite when the thing that God has definitely promised and said is that we'll face trouble. Your grief and distress in themselves won't derail you, but wrong expectations will. And so Peter is saying to humble ourselves means embracing the fact that God's call involves hardship. If we don't, we'll struggle to persevere. But of course, this is not all that Peter is saying in this verse. Can you uh, push it forward, Tom? Sorry, I don't think the clicker's is working. We humble ourselves in this way, knowing that we also have an amazing future hope. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he will lift you up in due time, meaning, as we've said, the final day of salvation. One of Peter's main focuses throughout this letter is that we have a future hope that has the power to sustain us through the trials. So D.A. Carson, uh, speaking about hope, referenced the work of a guy called Viktor Frankl, who was a, a Jewish psychoanalyst who'd been imprisoned in Auschwitz. And while he was there, what was really interesting is that he took note of how different people responded to the suffering that they faced. And he noted essentially four different ways that people responded. The first was that people very often became cruel themselves. So even good people, nice people, began to trample others in order to survive. That's how they dealt with their sense of hopelessness. Secondly, others just gave up. So even some of the most optimistic people lost all hope. They'd refuse to get up and get dressed, even though it meant being beaten. They just lay there. Thirdly, some held on to the hope that if they could survive, then maybe they could get back their health or their family or their profession, get back some sort of meaning in life. That was their hope. However, for those who were released, many found that those things were irretrievably gone and they ended up in deep depression. But then Frankl said, there was a small group who endured. There was a small group that had a strength throughout. And it was those who had some kind of fixed reference point beyond this world. Something that they held on to that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. For example, it might have simply been the belief that a loved one was looking down on them who they didn't want to disappoint. His conclusion was that only a hope that suffering and death cannot destroy can sustain us. Now, of course, we're not in a concentration camp, but I think that's so insightful about life in general. What Frankl's research showed him was that if you put your hope in anything finite, then when those things are stripped away, or when you face real difficulty, we don't have a hope that sustains. We need a hope that doesn't die. And the good news is, and what Peter has been telling these believers time and time again, is that we have a hope that goes way beyond a belief that someone might be looking down on us. In chapter one, he speaks about a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Our hope is not a vague or baseless superstition, but it's firmly grounded and secured by an event that happened in history the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can be certain of our future hope because we know that Christ has been raised. We know that he's overcome. We know that we will be lifted up when we submit to God. Why? Because he was. Yeah, you know, I just wonder whether we've truly grasped how amazing our hope is. You see, when the Bible speaks about the hope of resurrection... I think often we kind of assume that that's referring to oh yes you know when we die we go to be with Jesus in heaven. But as amazing as that is our hope goes even further. If our hope is just that we kind of get a better place to go to then in a sense you could say that we get some compensation for the bad things that have happened to us. But I want to suggest I've revealed some of my eschatology now. I want to suggest that our hope is even greater. It's resurrection into a new heaven and a new earth. And the word new there is not the word used for something brand new, but renewed. And therefore, our hope is not just compensation, but restoration, it's redemption. And I think actually that that is so important when it comes to our suffering. Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, irredeemable harm does not befall those who willingly live in the hands of God. In other words, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, to following him, even though that may bring more difficulty to our lives, there will be no harm done to us that isn't Redeemable. No harm that God somehow won't use and ultimately redeem and resurrect. And the death and resurrection of Jesus are our proof. I wonder, is this hope, this amazing hope that we have, this hope that irredeemable harm does not befall those who willingly live in the hands of God? Are you allowing that hope? To sustain you. But then, secondly, finally, and more briefly, in verse 7, we see that we also humble ourselves and experience God's grace by submitting our anxieties or our concerns to him. Now, this is important. You see, although we need that future hope to sustain us, there's still the question, isn't there, of what do we do with our anxieties in the present. And so Peter says, cast all your anxiety, or it could be translated concern or worries or care, on him because he cares for you. Now that verse makes a lovely poster, doesn't it? And maybe you've written that, received that or written that verse in a card. It's a, it's a lovely verse, great verse. Cast all your anxiety on it. But how does that actually work? You know, that can kind of be easier said than done, can't it? You know, does anyone else lie awake at night at times with just things swirling around in your head? And maybe you you try and pray about them, but that just makes them swirl around even more. You know, although prayer is surely involved in what Peter is saying here, notice Peter doesn't just say, pray about it. He tells us to cast it. Now, literally, that means to throw, to hurl it. The only other time in the New Testament where this word was used is in Luke chapter 19, where the disciples, it says, threw their cloaks onto the colt that Jesus then rode into Jerusalem. And I think probably that gives us the correct image. Notice Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him. So this is not just bring your troubles before God. This is throwing them on to God. Set them on his shoulders for him to carry. I think partly at least it's an acknowledgement that my problems are actually not first and foremost my problems. But because I'm his, they're God's problems. And so it's about releasing them to their rightful owner. Of course, that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities into those problems, but ultimately it's about seeing them as His. And Peter says, We're to release them to Him. Why? Because He cares for you. A literal translation could be cast your anxiety onto Him, for to Him it matters concerning you. I love that. To Him it matters concerning you. And because it matters concerning you, as Jesus made very clear when he talked about anxiety and worry in Matthew 6, that means that he's going to come through for you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to sustain you. Now, if you really take all of that into consideration, it makes no sense, does it? To hold on to your anxieties. And yet, so often we do. <laughs> Casting them is hard. Why is that? Well, remember, Peter is saying that to cast all our anxieties on him is a way that we humble ourselves. Now, the Bible has more to teach on this topic than what this one verse is saying. But I think this shows us one of the central reasons that we can struggle to cast our concerns on him. The reason that Peter is highlighting here is because maybe actually we don't want to fully let go of our self-sufficiency. Or we find it difficult to fully trust that he's in control, that he's going to come through for us. So how do we overcome that? How do we intentionally humble ourselves as Peter asks us to do here in order to experience God's grace? Well, Peter says, cast all your concerns on him. In other words, hold nothing back from God. Hurl it all onto him. I want to suggest then that we should also cast before God our struggle. let go our struggle to trust i think that's what it would mean to take the humble route and allow god's grace to work in our hearts now i remember this this idea being such a powerful revelation to me probably it might have been we did a series on mark's gospel here it might have been 10 years ago (laughs) i don't know but i was looking at mark chapter 9 of course you'll remember the sermon but in Mark 9 there was a there was a boy with a spirit who threw him into convulsions. Jesus after his transfiguration transfiguration comes down the mountain to a scene where the religious leaders are arguing with the disciples the disciples had failed to cast this, this boy out this this uh, spirit out. The the crowds are just there observing it all causes Jesus to say you faithless generation. So he enters this scene just marked by unbelief. A lack of trust. And yet in the midst of all that unbelief, there was one character, and I think this is the point that Mark is, is making in that passage, who powerfully demonstrated the humble faith and trust that God looks for. And that was the father of the boy. So the father says to Jesus, if you can help take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. And it says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, and this is it, I believe Help my unbelief. That is such a beautiful prayer. What's he doing? Well, he's casting everything to Jesus, including his lack of trust. And he's crying out for help. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus didn't need to do anything to help his faith before he delivered the boy. Why? Well, because with this cry, he expressed true faith. True trust. And so how do we deal with a lack of trust? How do we deal with our self-sufficiency? I want to suggest that we do the same. We cast it before Jesus. We yield everything to him, including our inability to yield everything to him. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? Just hold nothing back. That's the humble way. That, I believe, is the gateway for his grace to be at work in our lives. That's what it means to humble yourself. Let's pray and invite the team to come forward. i just encourage you, in, in just in the moment of quiet, I just wonder, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Maybe he wants to speak to you about your expectations. Maybe he wants to reassure you that even though you face faced cha- trials, his love for you has not changed. He is that rock that we spoke, Christie uh, spoke about at the beginning of the service. Or maybe he wants to, just again, focus you on your hope. That truth that no unredeemable harm can come upon you. Or maybe you need to cast onto him your anxieties or maybe even your inability to do that because he wants to carry you and he wants to carry your anxieties for it matters to him concerning you. Lord, I simply pray that as we humble ourselves, as we open our hearts to you, that you would minister to us by your grace. Amen.